Well, as you know, we are just a couple days away from the new year, 2014, and that means predictions, tis the season for predictions. Uh, that means hearing people say, um, we wish you and yours a very healthy and prosperous new year and those sorts of things. And while I would like to wish you a happy new year, and while I suppose I could make some reasonable predictions, uh, I don't want to do that during this time. What I would like to do right now is tell you what will happen next year. I want to tell you with authority. I want to tell you with certainty. I would like to even say that I'm about ready to tell you infallibly um, what will happen in 2014. I'm not a prophet, nor the son of a prophet, and as the joke goes, but I do work for a nonprofit organization. And uh, it's a church, and in the church, the pastor is supposed to proclaim God's word and what God has to say, the God who knows the future as well as the past. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about New Year's certainties. New Year's certainties from Romans chapter 8. So if you have a Bible, you can go there and, and open your Bible to Romans 8. And we're going to look at four New Year's certainties. Things that you can know for certain that are going to happen in 2014. I hope what happens as a result of this, you can be maybe bolder in 2014. Um, I hope what happens is you can have greater confidence in, in the Lord and His promises in the year ahead. I hope that it fosters a greater sense of worship um, in the year ahead. And how about this? I hope what happens in the year ahead by knowing these things, I hope you can also be reasonable. Uh, you can be in touch with reality instead of being in denial about what should happen, what will happen, what won't happen. I hope it really helps prepare us this morning as we think about the year ahead. I was listening to a sermon this morning, just as an aside, I was listening to a sermon this morning and the pastor was talking about um, the year ahead and talking about 1963. And so um, I suppose someday, I, should, I shouldn't have said 2014, because someday somebody's going to be listening to this thinking, this is no relevance at all, because that was, you know, 40-some years ago. But anyway, hopefully the Lord will come back by then, and we won't sound as irrelevant as we would. With that said, though, we're going to say this about 2014, because it's true about 2014, 15, 13, 12, 10. These are things that are always true. Things that are always true in Romans chapter 8. And uh, it's a favorite text of Scripture by believers for good reason because it's about certainty and sureness, things we've been singing about. And uh, just to give you a heads up, number one is going to be the negative one. Okay, so just to kind of brace yourself, you can brace yourself for this. We're going to start on a negative and we're going to turn it into a positive. But number one, the first New Year certainty that we can be prepared for will be suffering. Suffering will happen. Suffering will continue in the year ahead. And we're going to see that in Romans chapter 8. We are living in denial. Denial of biblical realities. Denial of perceptive realities. If we think somehow the year ahead is not going to be a year with suffering. I hope you're prosperous. If you want to be prosperous, I hope you have good health. I wish all the best for you because that's a nice, loving thing to do. 
I am making plans. I am setting goals. I want it to be a great year. In many ways, for most of us, it will be. But you need to know, and I need to know, that this is not Eden. And that this is not heaven. And in Romans chapter 8, we learn that we need to realize that this broken world has suffering. There's brokenness in relationships. We have broken bodies. We have a broken government. We have brokenness all around us. And we have to know that this year. You have to know that this year. Or you're not in touch with reality. And as we'll see, you're not ready then to have the anticipation and the hope of sure and better things. If you would, let's go ahead and look at beginning in verse 18 of Romans chapter 8. And the context is it's meant to be positive and encouraging, but we can't see the positiveness and the encouraging nature of this unless we first at least grasp the, the, the negativity of the brokenness. And so we'll come back to it on a positive note. But for now, let's just see uh, the negative side of things. Verse 18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time... Now he says really encouraging and wonderful things. We're going to get to, go, get to those later. But just for now, see the sufferings of this present time. Christians need to know that... Though God loves us, though Christ died for us and was raised for us, that doesn't somehow mean that this is heaven. That doesn't somehow mean that everything in the here and now is fixed. It's not. False teachers will tell you otherwise, and perhaps that's one reason Paul has to address this issue in Romans 8. And I want to, 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 to remind you, sufferings of this present age, tied to this present age, are sufferings. The year ahead is going to be a year ahead that contains sufferings. Some worse than others. Some more intensely for others. But this present age is an age of suffering. Let's keep reading. Also, in, then in verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility. Some translations might say vanity, aimlessness. One translation says frustration. The idea is, it, is it that it's broken. Not willingly, but because of Him. In the context there, that's certainly a Him referring to God. But because of Him, God, who subjected it. So again, this is, this is not Eden. This is not heaven. We have to realize that... that He's anticipating that we understand Romans 1 and the early chapters of Genesis. God creates a good world with no suffering, no brokenness, and there's human rebellion against God. And as a result of that, God subjected the world to the suffering. The, the world, we might even say in another context, is cursed. We're, we're under the judgment of God. The world is under the judgment of God because, again, God creates, God creates good, God creates human beings, and they rebel against Him, and so God brings judgment. And so we, we of all people, shouldn't be in denial of that. The world is broken. The world is broken because of our rebellion. And, and it's not gone because these folks or us folks are Christians. We're still living in a broken world. We've got to know that or we're, we're in denial. 
of the worst kind. Still looking at the negative side of things, if you look at verse 21, that the creation itself will be set free. See, that's the positive. We're not to that yet. But do notice it says, from its bondage to corruption. In the here and now, the world is in bondage to corruption. It's enslaved to corruption. Again, brokenness. How about verse 22, where it says, For we know that the whole creation, so this is universal, the whole creation has been groaning. It's pain, suffering, toil. Figuratively speaking, even the creation is groaning. Now he gets to the positive, but we're skipping it for now. Verse 23 then says, And not only the creation, but we ourselves. Human beings, even believing human beings here. We ourselves, and if you drop down to the next line, groan inwardly. We're like the creation. And then he talks about toward the end of that verse there, at the end of verse 23, the redemption of our bodies. We're waiting for that, but in the here and now, even our bodies are broken. Pain and suffering. It goes along with living in a cursed world. My friends, you really, really need to know that. You really need to know that. To be in touch with reality. Not just what you can perceive with your senses, but theologically, understanding what's wrong with this world. Why does my body hurt more? Why do I have these problems relationally, physically, emotionally? Why is the world in the state that it's in? Why is there pain? Why are all these problems happening around me? We live in a fallen world. And again, I realize this should just be super obvious. But maybe it's not always so super obvious. Broken world. As you enjoy enjoyable things this year, and more than likely every single one of us will enjoy enjoyable things, and you do so to the glory of God, you've got to know that the world is still broken. This isn't heaven. This isn't Eden. And Christians are not somehow um, with some sort of escape clause broken and I don't mean to be Debbie Downer today (laughs) but I do mean to be a faithful pastor and to say until the Lord Jesus Christ returns which is a prediction no one is supposed to make that could happen this year and fools have named the year when it will happen we're not going to do that Matthew 24 but unless he comes back this year you can know that there'll be suffering and pain and difficulty this year. Some who are hearing this, maybe the speaker, won't see 2015. We don't know. Broken world. How can you best prepare for the days ahead? By being in touch with reality. By not being in denial by knowing why this even is. And we need to make sure we do that. Now you can add 
not insult to injury, but you need to know that that's just true generally, the whole world and human beings. And, and here we're Christians, and so you add another component to it, and that is we're followers of Jesus Christ. And, and by and large, people reject Jesus Christ. And so Jesus says in John chapter 15, if they rejected me, they'll reject you. So now we have another dynamic of pain we can anticipate. He says, a servant is not greater than his master, is John chapter 15, verses 20 to 21. And so you need to know that too. So I'm going to have hardship that's common to human beings this year, hopefully with lots of good things too, but hardship common to human beings this year, so are you. And if you're a Christian, you might even have a little dose of extra hardship because your allegiance is ultimately to Christ. Thankfully, we don't end on the downer. But how will we anticipate relief that is genuine, not some huckster relief from some guy on TV, genuine relief that will be lasting relief, that will be irreversible relief? How will we anticipate that unless we understand that there is a problem? We won't. But now let's go back to our text. Now let's see that if we understand that the world is broken, that we're broken... We can anticipate that which is to come. Look what it says. I love it in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of the pre- this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. doesn't even compare. Verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Point there is, is creation even knows the way it's described here that when we experience the fullness of our salvation in Christ at Christ's return, that'll mean the world gets fixed too. Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who, subju- uh, him who subjected it. Yeah, that's because of the rebellion of human beings. The world is cursed. Then verse 20, in hope... Again, people think Christianity is, is hope in nothing. It's where... Um, where Good sense doesn't make sense, then you somehow make up something. No, hope here, we're going to see hope is tied to, it's a certainty, it's tied to historical events by the historic person and work of Jesus. Let's keep going. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Even notice that there's hope in that, right? It's groaning, but just like when someone is in labor and they're, they're, they're going through the pains, it is difficult and it's not make-believe pain, it's real pain, but it's with a view toward something that is, that is positive and good and right because it's life. And that's the image of, of what's happening in the creation. It's, it's hard, it's difficult, it's not make-believe pain, it's real pain, but it's in anticipation of Christ's return when things are made right. And that's the kind of anticipation we would want to have amidst the brokenness, verse 23 says, and not only the creation, but we ourselves. He's talking to Christians like you and like me who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly. So we're groaning. It's painful. We're not living in make-believe land. It really hurts. It's really painful. It's real suffering as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, We wait for it with 
patience. That's a huge, huge perspective changer. We're waiting. We're anticipating. But once again, that assumes that we're in touch with reality and that's things are messed up. We're messed up. We're, we're all, everyone in this room is living a dysfunctional life. And we live in a dysfunctional world. I'm a dysfunctional husband, dysfunctional dad, dysfunctional pastor. And my body isn't functioning right either. And it's probably just going to get worse. But that's due to sin. We read it in our passage. And Christ is the Savior from sin. And as we will see in our passage, not just spiritual reconciliation takes place as crucial as that is, and that takes place, we'll see that. But we might say holistic reconciliation that includes our bodies. The whole world. Restoration. So that once again, God will be able to say, it is good. Ah, very good. And it's tied to Christ. So as you think ahead and as you plan ahead and, and, and you live your life this next year, and maybe it won't be so rough this year, maybe the next year, you just have to know. You have to know that this is in Eden. And it's not heaven. And it won't be until Christ returns. Now, sometimes people say, well, I know God wouldn't have it be this way if He could. Well, maybe we're not that honest. We won't say it that way, but we think that way. Well, I, I know that I, as a Christian, it shouldn't be this way for me. So if God just could, He wouldn't have it be this way for me. New Year's certainty number two, the sovereignty of God. You can be certain that in 2014, God will be sovereign. And God can do anything He wants to do. And God does everything He wants to do. And you can know that God will be sovereign in 2014 no matter what happens circumstantially. And you can know that He was sovereign in 2013 and He'll be sovereign in 2020. He was sovereign in 20 A.D., 20 B.C., because by nature, God is sovereign. In Romans chapter 1, we see that He's the Creator. Well, by virtue of the fact that He created, that means He's sovereign. He's the King. He's in charge. It belongs to Him. He calls the shots. He has the power to create by speaking things into being. He is the Lord. He is the one who does whatever He wants to do by virtue of the fact of who He is. So He's sovereign. And how about this? Just when you think that might be kind of scary. He's for us in His sovereignty. And that's amazing. It's amazing. Now, He's so sovereign with this world of His. That's why we even read earlier in Romans chapter 8 that He subjected the world to futility. I mean, He's in charge. His laws stand. What He says goes. Where there's a violation of His law, He brings the consequences. He's just showing Himself to be sovereign. 
He's utterly sovereign. But in Christ, we don't cower in fear because in Christ, as believers in Christ, those of us who are united to Christ by faith, He's for us in His all-powerful, all-reaching, majestic sovereignty. It's so bizarre how so many times even Christians, of all things that they don't like, they don't like the sovereignty of God. They don't like the in-chargeness of God. They don't like the freedom of God to do whatever He wants to do. I hope you'll see in just a moment, if you kind of have those tendencies, I hope you'll see that in the Bible, the sovereignty of God for believers is the most extraordinary, amazing thing because here you have the God who's all-powerful and all-knowing and totally in charge for you. It's awesome. I think it was John Owen who said, when you speak of God's sovereignty, Speak softly, because you're talking about the very heart of God. It's who He is, the Godness of God. Well, how about having the Godness of God for you? It should be our favorite doctrine, as somebody else said. It's God's favorite doctrine, because He's sovereign. And if you were God, it would be your favorite doctrine too. It's the Godness of God, but again, it's the Godness of God for us. How about Romans 8.28? It's a passage you probably know well. But you've got to know that it's in the context of the sovereignty of God. We're not going to go to Ephesians 1.11 that talks about the sovereignty of God. We're going to keep to Romans chapter 8. But in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, again, so often quoted that oftentimes it doesn't carry the punch that it needs to carry. Not, not punch, better the, 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 the care that it should carry. How about this? And we know... Christians should know about the sovereignty of God. It's an expectation. And we know, we have certainty, we have sureness that for those who love God, that's another way of saying a Christian in our context, all things, I underlined that and emboldened that, all things. Oh, what's our context? Primarily having to do with positive things that happen? No, in our context, primarily, circumstantially, it's the bad things that happen in a broken world. But it would include the good and the bad. I just want to make sure you see the point there in our context. Groaning, suffering, pain, anguish. We know, Christians, in the year ahead amidst it, God's sovereign, we know that all things, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Another way of saying a Christian. Or as another translation puts it, I memorized it in the New American Standard, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God. How about that? I, 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 I so want you to own that and know that so that when the pain is like never before, let's just make a deal right here. I don't have to bring it up. Because then it just seems so insensitive and it seems like you're just slapping that verse on. I would prefer just to cry with you and pray with you and encourage you. But you've got to know what I'm thinking and, and I want to know what you're thinking. I want you to be thinking about the truth and the reality of Romans chapter 8, verse 28. God 
causes all things to work together for your good if you're a Christian. You've got to embrace that and own that and you have to do that or how in the world are you going to survive a broken world? You're going to live in denial and not make any sense of anything. He's writing to Christians like you and like me and He loves us so much He gives His Son up for us. But we're still in a broken world. We're waiting for Christ to return and He's saying that every single thing that happens in your life, whether it be the physical good or bad, the emotional good or bad, circumstantial good or bad, and the list goes on, God is amazingly, because He's sovereign and He can do this, how He could do this for one person, I don't even know. That he does this for every believer, countless numbers of people, and he's causing it all to work together for our good is staggering to the mind. But that's the God that Christians trust in. In the year ahead, he's the God you should be trusting in. He's extraordinary and trustworthy. And when I don't understand the difficulty and no one seems to understand the difficulty and those who are closest to you and you thought would maybe understand the difficulty and they don't and you get the, you get the idea. God causes all of it to work together for your good. Sovereignty of God for you. Is amazing. Is amazing. And you know how he can say what he says in verse 28? Well, he can say what he says in verse 28 because of what he says in verses 29 and 30. Here's where theology matters. Your understanding of God really matters. I think you could you can take or leave verse 28 if it's not for verses 29 and 30. How about 29? For those whom he foreknew. Notice it's personal. Those whom. God doesn't just know events or circumstances or happenstance. He knows people. For those whom he foreknew. The idea is foreloved. He, he puts his, his loving touch on someone even beforehand. He also predestined. See, the only way all things could work together for our good is if there is this thing called predestined in verse 29. The two go hand in hand. To be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. The idea there is because Christ was raised from the dead first. But He's leading us who trust in Him in that resurrection. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Man, talk about practical. Because God has a plan from before time begins to the point of after time as we know it and the glorification, because God, God has that kind of plan and he's powerful enough and wise enough to have that kind of plan that will unfold, that will unfold, then and only then we can say, this God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and those who've been called according to his purpose is awesome. It's awesome. In the year ahead, you've got to know God will be sovereign. 
There, nothing can knock him off of his throne. Amidst the difficulty, and there's going to be, and we would want to be Christianly amongst one another and weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. We would want to be doing those things. But how about we can be doing those things knowing in our minds that we are confident in God's work in our lives. Because we know that those whom he foreknew, oh, let's just skip the in-between stuff for now for the sake of the point, he glorified. And so he's causing it all to work together for our good. I so badly want you to get that and know that and embrace that and have it be a part of the fiber of who you are. How do you get ready for the year ahead in a broken world? You know that God is sovereign and God always will be sovereign and God will never fall off of his throne. And therefore, if his sovereignty is for you, life is livable. Just great stuff. Now scratch that. It's a great God. He's personal. These aren't just, you know, theological concepts. I'm sorry, I I fall into talking like that sometimes. I apologize. Those whom he foreknew. Oh, personal. If you're a Christian, God foreknew you. He foreloved you. He predestined you. Predestined me to what? I don't like that doctrine. Stop! (laughs) You should love that doctrine. It's personal. Those whom he predestined. And because he says that, and we know that, we can know Romans 8, 28, and it's all going to work together for our good, our ultimate good and glorification. It's awesome stuff. God has the authority. He has the power. He has the purpose. And he cares enough to have it be for us. Isn't this good? I'm having my own little personal worship service here today. Um, I hope we're doing this corporately, worshiping God together for His great promises. These are the things we know infallibly that will be true in 2014. God will be in charge. God will be in charge and it will be for our good. Number three, a third New Year certainty is security. Security. Specifically, your security, your spiritual security, my spiritual security. We're ultimately secure. Ultimate success is sure if we're united to Christ by faith. Now, let's start at the place where it's kind of odd. Ultimately, you can know that in 2014, if you're a Christian... You're safe from God. You're safe from God. And in so many ways, that should be the most exciting. Do you mean it? I'm safe from God? No, it's not exciting to us as 21st century Americans raised on Oprah theology where God's only attribute is love. But let's just pretend like we we haven't been mentored by Oprah, even though we all have. And let's just pretend like we know our Bibles better than we do. 
we should be saying, safe from God. God is my biggest problem. God is my biggest fear. God is, God is the one that I, I, I'm terrified of. That's how it should be. Read Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Read, uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, There is therefore, he starts with the best part and the most important part in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I mean, that sets it off at a high point in the chapter. There's no condemnation. Specifically, there's no condemnation from God. And you should be condemned by God. But there isn't any. And you say, this is awesome. I'm not afraid. I don't have to be afraid. No condemnation from God. How? For those who are in Christ Jesus. How about down in verse 3 where it says halfway through, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh. How about verse 7? For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. That's us in our natural state. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. That's us, us in our natural state. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's us in our natural state. So condemned, not pleasing God, not obeying God's law, and so I should cower, run, and hide, and so should you. And here it says in verse 1, no condemnation. How could this possibly be? For those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Because in effect, He condemns His Son. Because His Son is a substitute. And the Son fulfilled the law. He did everything right. There is no violation of the law of God held against us because of Christ's perfect obedience. That's why it's so amazing to read verse 7, which we just did. The hostility to God is gone. We didn't submit to God's law. How could there be no condemnation then? Because Christ did submit to God's law. And you go, yes. I'm safe and secure. I'm safe and secure because I'm in Christ. That's the best thing about the year ahead. You're safe. You're secure. Isn't that great? It's so great. Now God, as you stand before God, if you're a Trusting in Christ. Though he should condemn you. Doesn't. In fact in our text. In our context. You're considered an heir. How about that? You're you're a son. You're first in line. Right behind Christ. It's awesome. Awesome. Safe. Safe. He goes on to talk about the safety. Um, how about verse 31? 
um, for the sake of time. What then shall we say to these things? <laughs> if God is for us, who can be against us? How about that for a great rhetorical way of putting that? Verse 32, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? I mean, how about that for an argument from the greater to the lesser? He gave His Son for you. Obviously, He'll give you all of the other great blessings. How about secure and safe? How about sure? How about verse 11? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? (laughs) Maybe put your finger there just for a second. And notice where it says, it is God who justifies. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? The implied answer is, nobody. At least not a charge that can stick. Makes me mentally go to the declaration that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. So there are charges made against us. Right now, Satan could go to God if God allows. He can go to God and say, God, look at Pat Abendroth. He is guilty of idolatry. And all of the angels could, if they wanted to, say, Amen. It's true. Satan, the accuser of the brethren, would be right, just as a clock is right, even if it stopped twice a day, it's right. Satan, even though he's called the father of lies, could go to the father and say, Pat Abendroth has never loved you with his heart, soul, mind, and strength ever a second in his life. He's never kept your law. And we know you're a law-keeping God. And you require death for law-breaking. And Satan would be telling the truth. And the same would be true for you. But the question still stands. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? And notice what he goes on to say before the sentence and the next sentence. It is God who justifies. Notice how great the pairing is. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? Well, anybody and everybody could. And they would always be right because we're sinners. If it weren't for the work of God on our behalf, the work of justification. It is God, like this this great, amazing declaration with His gavel of innocent. But better, it's righteous lawkeeper. It is God who justifies. Awesome. Because God has His Son obey the law perfectly as our representative so that His law-keeping can be credited to us. And so God can then look at Pat Avendroth, the sinner, and declare me a law-keeper, though I'm a law-breaker, and that's justification. And how does this happen? Because of Christ. Because of what Christ has done. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? How about this? And have it stand. Nobody. How? Because it is God who justifies. If you think somehow you're going to earn favor with God and you're going to do it and you just got to keep getting on this treadmill, I'm glad we sang that song today that, that is counter to any of that. Then you won't have any security and you won't feel confident and you won't have that safety. But if you're trusting in the God who justifies, it is God who justifies. I'm safe. No condemnation for me can't lose it because I didn't gain it. 
I like what John MacArthur says when he says, if I could lose my salvation, I would. I would lose it every second of every day. And so would you. It is God who justifies. Safe. Safe. It's awesome. No one will lose their salvation in 2014. (laughs) Who truly has salvation? Can't be done. The irreversible work of God. How about that for boldness? And I don't want to get too off track, and I think we take it out of context sometimes. But just to make the point about this, Luther at one point in time is recorded as saying, Therefore, sin boldly. Now, we could take that in an anti-Romans chapter 6 sense. (laughs) But we can also take it to make the point. If you are truly justified in Christ, nothing can reverse that. So we should at least be at that point where we know our confidence is not in ourselves. Our confidence is in Christ. Did I tell you to put your finger on that verse? Is your finger getting tired? I'm getting tired just from preaching today, but it's awesome. How about verse 34? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. I mean, I love that back in verse 34. Who is to condemn? Who's going to condemn Pat Abendroth? Because there's no grounds for condemning Pat Abendroth based upon at Abendroth's current actions because it is Christ who died. It is Christ who was raised. There's no foundation for my condemnation anymore. If I'm in Him, this is extraordinary. This is exceptional. And He's interceding for us. How about verse 35? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword... And then we have this verse kind of coming out of left field, kind of out of nowhere, it seems. Maybe it's because of an objection that Paul had. Maybe it's because of an anticipated objection. But what he does is he quotes from a psalm to make the point that the people of God, just because they are the people of God, doesn't mean they're somehow exempt from suffering or exempt from persecution. So he quotes Psalm 44, verse 22, For your sake... We are being killed all the day long and we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. He's borrowing from the Old Testament making the point that Christians in the here and now aren't the first people to be persecuted. It doesn't mean God doesn't love you or you're not safe and secure because you're experiencing persecution and difficulty and suffering in a broken world. It's a broken world. This has been going on a long time. Throughout redemptive history, it's been going on. So that's why he includes that verse, I think, from Psalm 44, verse 22. Then let's keep going in verse 37. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. More than conquerors. I remember when I was first learning Greek years ago, and I remember reading this and learning, and I think it's hupernike off the top of my head. I haven't looked at it for a long time since we were in Romans a long time ago. Hupernike. Super Nikes. Oh, that's pretty cool. Christians don't wear Adidas. 
Christians wear Nikes. Hooper Nike. We all have the swoosh. Super victors. Super conquerors. We are more than conquerors. Because we're in Christ. Victory is sure. How do we know that? Because Christ has been raised from the dead. It's already done. It's not hope and hope. It's not wishing and wishing. Christ is raised from the dead, so we are more than conquerors through Him. Not because of what we do. Through Him who loved us, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And just in case you're thinking it's all in the spiritual, go back with me if you would, just real quick to verse 23. I want you to know that this is a holistic kind of security, ultimately. It's God saves people and we are spiritual and we are physical and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. We already are adoption, but adopted as sons, according to verses 14 and 15, but we're waiting to enter into the fullness of that. But then notice what it says at the end of verse 23, the redemption of our bodies. So when your body hurts and your body's broken and you're sick and things are just getting worse because that's how things go and that's how they're going to go apart from Christ returning in the meantime, you got to know the work of Christ is the solution for everything. The condemnation before God but also the brokenness that comes as a result of a sin-cursed world. It's all brought to restoration in and through the personal work of Christ because He rose from the dead bodily. One day that day will come when God can say it's very good again. Restoration in Christ. Safe. In an ultimate sense, our bodily restoration is secure too. There's nothing that can be done that can undo that if we're in Christ. Well, maybe before we wrap up, just to make an observation regarding security, we've seen the Father's purposes. We've seen the Son's work. We also see the Spirit's work. I'll just choose one verse. Verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus, Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. But he talks about the spirit in verse 14. Talks about the spirit in verse 10. Talks about the spirit in verse 9, 15, 16, 17. But for the sake of time, I just want you to at least see for now that there's safety in numbers. Especially when you're talking about three and one. Father purposing and working. Son working. Spirit working. And because of the triune God, you are safe. And there's nothing that can be done to undo your safety in Him. Isn't it good? Better than some 
crackpot prediction for 2014. Better than, I wish you the best, although that's a nice, kind thing to say, and I would say that too. But as Christians, we have something more to say. Safety, security in the year ahead, no matter what happens. If nothing else, it should make us bold. Bold in our witness, bold in mission, bold in living for the glory of God and the glory of Christ. Fourthly and finally, another New Year's certainty. God and God alone is worthy of our devotion. I tried to make it an S, but it didn't work. God and God alone in 2014 will be worthy of our devotion. Because of all of these things, our ultimate commitment, our ultimate allegiance, our ultimate devotion is reserved for God. We know that that's true. In verse 11, it says, well, we already read verse 11, so let's just go down. It's based on the work of the Spirit and the work of Christ. But then verse 12 says, So then, brothers, there's a logical connection. In light of this work of the Spirit and raising Christ and how it's for you, He's for you. So then, brothers, good, there's a good three-word statement. We are debtors. Not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. We're debtors. The idea is not we have a debt so we have to repay it because we can't repay it. But he says we are debtors as in we have an allegiance, a logical allegiance, a logical devotion. He's done all of these things for you. It makes no sense whatsoever for your devotion to be to your sin. It's ludicrous. It's crazy. It makes no sense whatsoever for your ultimate devotion to be to your sin or to yourself. Your ultimate devotion is is to Him. We're debtors. He has saved you. He has redeemed you. He has rescued you. He has made you an heir. He has done all of these things. God justifies. So what should you do? Devotion. Commitment. Because there's only one to whom devotion and commitment is deserved. This is that great gratitude spot, right? He's done all of this. I'm committed to Him. Not as a payback, but because it's just the, it's, it's the natural, dare we say, supernatural thing to be doing. Well, I'm so glad that I can stand before you and say more than Happy New Year. I wish you the best health. I wish you, I wish you and your, yours prosperity. I could say those things. I'm supposed to love my neighbor. Those are loving things to say. But I'm so glad that as Christians and as a Christian pastor, I don't, I, I don't find myself limited to that. I can say, how about this?
sureness. Certainty. Is what 2014 will bring to you. Without a doubt. Without question. Amidst the brokenness. Surely. 2014 will be a good year for you. You just read Romans 8.28. And all the other verses. Again some of us might not make it to 2015. Surely, 2014 will be a good year for you. No matter what happens. Oh yes, we're responsible for our actions. Surely, 2014 will be a good year for you if you are in Christ. How awesome is that? Theological word for the day. is an old word I think we need to just borrow at least for today. And that word is surety. Surely 2014 is going to be a great year for you if you're a believer because you have a surety whose name is Christ. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 22 says, this makes Jesus the surety or the guarantor of a better covenant. Christ is our guarantor. He's the one who assumes the obligation for us. And because of His work as surety, you have a sure good future. And you have a certain good future. Our surety brings us our sureness. Not what we do, not what we, what we don't do, but in Him who makes all things sure, our surety. Father, thank You so much for Jesus Christ who is our guarantor. Help us to, even as believing people, repent of our self-righteousness and self-trust and self-rest. Help us to be able to know more than, 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 than well wishes. That there is certainty in Christ, our guarantor, our surety. What a delight it is to be secure and safe in Him. May that security, may that safety be the very thing that makes us bold and courageous and fearless. For the glory of Christ and in whose name we pray, amen.